0: Man, that's that's the dream now though, like be a pastor that has a collection of Jordans, 25,000 members, your church pumps out a couple of K-Love hits, Uh, you really get to ride the wave until your sex scandal hits.
1: That's (laughs) right. That's right. That's right. Burn, burn hot and fast. But I mean, the thing is like, it's, 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 it's really true though, that like, That like everybody's in, and I'm not even saying this is a bad thing. It's not, it's actually good business. It's a, it's an, it's an innovative business model. But um, if you really stop and think about it.
0: Welcome to Growing Up Christian. I'm Casey. And I'm Sam. And uh, Sam and I, before we ever started this, we were both big podcast listeners and still are, right? I mean, you still listen to a bunch, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, not nearly as many as I used to. I used to, like, when I my commute to work was like it used to be before COVID, five days a week. And like most commutes, I guess, but mine was a little over an hour. And then it was like an hour and 15, hour and 20 home, depending on traffic. So I would get in a lot of podcast listening then. Uh, so I only go to the office like two days a week now. And I listen to significantly less podcasts. There's like a big backlog. I want like every I refresh it all the time and I still like subscribe to all the same ones. So now it just shows me how many I haven't listened to now. Which just kind of- locks up
0: your phone with all the downloads.
2: <laughs> yeah. It kind, of, kind of like a little bit of... It's kind of stressful when you look at all those unlistened to podcasts and you're like trying to figure out which one to get to next and you just don't know and you stare at it for a little while before you finally make a decision.
0: Well, they all kind of like, especially all the big popular ones, all have similar sponsors it seems like.
2: Yeah, oh for sure.
0: The same list of companies sponsors everything. One of those companies is Manscaped. You've heard ads, ads for them. Okay, so I've been wanting to get one of those uh one of their it's it's basically like a ball trimmer, yeah, it's like you know the I think they call it the lawnmower
2: yeah the lawnmower uh, last I knew it was two point oh I don't know if they're up to a 3.0, oh, but I just got the lawnmower
0: four point oh and this shit. is not an official endorsement, but yeah,
2: we don't have that yet, but maybe they'll hear sometimes this.
0: you just gotta put a little worm on the hook and see what <laughs> hits you know. <laughs> But uh yeah, so I got the four point oh finally. I've been wanting one for a while. A couple of I got you know, one of my coworkers, he got one and he was telling me how great it was, and then you know, I felt his balls, they were silky smooth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm calling it the scrum saw.
2: Yeah, the scrum saw. <laughs> the old yeah, brush. Apparently dog. is it information technology? There's like an actual um scrum is a Job like, there's a, I, I saw a job posting at one point for looking for a scrum master. And I was like, hey, hey that's interesting. That's not I didn't know that was uh, a real thing. I only ever heard scrum as uh, not a job.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. My parents didn't pay for eight years of orthodontics so that I could be a scrum master. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So uh, so I got one of these things at Target. Oh, that the Target now? Damn, that shit's Yeah, target. They made it big. So I wanted to try it out, but you know, I had uh just just trim the goods. Mm. So I started kind of like, well, I'm like, well, you know, I got like I got like my the hair on my gut is like a dinner plate. Ew. You know, it's huge <laughs> and round. It's like rounded in shape, which seems like exactly the opposite of what you'd want
2: yeah and then you don't have hair anywhere else on your body
0: yeah i have like a like 40 chest hairs total yeah and they're in an too.
2: x might kind of do that too we should show we, we should put our chest hair on the instagram page at some point
0: maybe we should we should get Manscaped to uh sponsor a scrum sauce so we can shave it <laughs> off and then we'll weigh it and whoever whoever's got the most pound for pound
2: uh, that's uh Ooh, was- Gets to
0: be the other scrum master.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I'm like, well, yeah, I don't like this. Maybe I'll like just sort of like shape it a little bit. I'll just take the edges off of it. But it was one of those things. that's like when you you start trimming away at something and pretty soon like you're way too far. You're way farther in than you had anticipated going. Oh, yeah. And by the end, like I pretty much just realized like this is bizarre. I've got like this like weird arrow pointed down towards my. <laughs> <laughs> and so I ended up having to just like shave my gut. So now I have like the, a bald gut and chest hair and I it feels really weird. It just feels I don't <laughs> want to go to a pool now.
2: Oh, yeah. And everyone will just see it coming back is like stubbly they'll yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be like oh we know that guy just shaved his gut hair but i'll ask people committed. to put
0: sunscreen on and i'll be like can you use your fingernails
2: <laughs> i'll just get like a rash on their hand after doing your tummy <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah so that's my adventure for the week
2: nice sounds uh last time i had uh like experienced the you've done this wrong and you can't fix it kind of vibe for shaving was like like the beard like you're just you start with the neck and i just do the slip and you go and it's just too far up and you i look like it i look i don't grow a good beard i I don't it's it's fine it passes it works um it barely connects to a mustache the mustache is real thin uh but i need a beard because i have like no chin I don't have a chin and it's not like a double chin or like I'm a really big guy and it just goes from like chin to neck or something like that. It's just I just have my chin comes off my neck like an inch and a half. And if I don't have a like facial hair covering that and kind of going down my neck, I don't think I I just think I look dumb. I don't think I have a a great chin. So I, I like to keep a beard. And I thought you looked good with your, you know.
0: I never thought about that. But so you're saying you got kind of like a Mama June thing going on
2: here. I'll just side profile it. It's just not much, not much going on there. But (laughs) when I shaved it for the first, my kids have never seen me like shave, like a shaved face. So uh, when I came out of the bathroom like that, I just like, you know, just knock the like the clippers down to just like the just the bare metal thing and just get rid of it all. And I came out and both my kids stopped and looked at me and my daughter was like, you look weird. It's like, cool. This is nice. <laughs> Leave it to kids. I know. So, I started playing this game this week, uh, courtesy of a buddy of mine, uh, Aaron Minton. I'll throw his name out there. He's got a podcast called Pilgrims Digress, um, and it's called Church Tycoon. It's like a roller coaster tycoon, but for churches. You, Are you kidding me? Yeah, dude, this is stupid. <laughs> it's um, you like, you start out small, right? You little community church. It's basic, man. This is a simple ass game, but it's it's just a funny. It's a funny concept. I've been enjoying it. So you start out like with like the front row of your church open, like, then you can unlock more rows as you bring in more money, and then you have to like. <laughs> You have to get people who like you can upgrade your people who pass the collection plate. And the more you upgrade those people, uh, the more money they can collect. Like, so your seats, it'll tell you how much money people in the seats want to give. But if your people aren't upgraded enough, they can't collect all the money. That's just ready to be grubbed. (laughs) And, uh, and then they go drop it in like the collection bowl in the front. And, um, and then you have to have an you have upgrade another person who who's a treasurer that takes that money and brings it into the back, and then that's when it goes to your total money. And then so you can unlock like new, uh, like unlock more rows, and then like get more people to collect the money, and then you can really zoom out and like unlock more churches in like your area and your city and then you can go across the globe oh, man it's pretty stupid but it's kind of fun
0: it's it's <laughs> it like a certain level can you start having services at like the local high school gymnasium
2: <laughs> it's so dude there's like like your pastor you know uh it's like they have abilities and you can unlock new pastors but their abilities have to recharge it's so like If like you could click it and for like a minute and a half, people will give 20% more money or something like that. Or uh, (laughs) you can have somebody else who will like for a certain period of time, like they'll collect, uh, they'll be able to collect like 40% more money from, from the seats. And dang, it's funny, dude. That's (laughs) it's hilarious.
0: That's such a great concept. I was like trying to think of all of the possible like upgrades that would be hilarious in that game. Like a church van would be like an initial. It would have to be like a 70s Econoline that has carpet on the roof, like on the <laughs> ceiling inside the van. And it's got like a mothball smell that just never goes away. That's and an then upgrade? you upgrade to the one oh. that has curtains on the windows. Oh, yeah. Eventually, you get the short bus with like the uh, the pivoting door. I, I remember our church did that at one point, and that was kind of like, "Whoa. This, uh,
2: I, I only have one church still. I am not I'm not a mega pastor yet, but what's fun about the game is once you start it, like while you're not playing it, you you still collect money. So I, um, this is dope. So it's been four hours and nine minutes since I last logged in, and I can collect four hundred and forty-five million dollars because I'm raking it in, dude. I'm bringing in the bucks.
0: Preaching that prosperity gospel, huh? Oh yeah. Got people rejecting the spirit of poverty and stuff.
2: Oh yeah. So I can I can do a lot of upgrades right now. My uh my assistant pastor will, uh, yeah, forty. it'll save me on upgrading my assistants and how much money they can bring in by 40%. So I don't know. Maybe people want to get on church tycoon and build their own mega church and scam people out of money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's like a weird dynamic when it comes to, you know, churches and pastors and money. It's like, it's a weird position to have somebody making a whole bunch of money in. You know, I mean, to some extent, like I get it. If they're bringing people in that ha- that hard, then uh, you know, of course, like they're valuable to the church, I guess. But right, it's just weird to see like a pastor with you know five hundred dollar Nikes, or I mean, I remember yeah, seeing a TV yeah. special at one point where like they were showing this pastor in in Ohio, and he had a private helicopter and oh yeah just mansion
2: well i mean steven furtick went through some bullshit a good few years ago because he was writing a book and you know he, he writes this book and he puts it out and he makes a shitload of money on it and the criticism was that like he he probably wrote a lot of that book as a pastor like on pastor time right like And he his insistence was that he only wrote for that book when he was home and not on like, not doing his like his work week as a pastor or whatever. But I mean, Stephen Furtick's obviously bringing in a ton of money. I mean, that guy's a millionaire, and you do it really at some point should beg the question like, how much is too much for a pastor to make? Now, you know, people will compare these bit like these churches in the pastors to like CEOs of businesses, because at some level, Stephen Furtick is running. It is a business at that point, right? It's not, and it's not a for profit, but like, you know, if you're a CEO of red cross, you're probably making some decent money. Uh, I don't, th- I'm not trying to compare elevation church and red cross by any means. I don't think they're the same, but you know, you have something like elevation, which is a multi-site mega church, and he's kind of the calling the shots behind all of it. And he's the lead, the lead guy that's bringing in the bucks. So it does like, you know, as a guy, if you're looking at things like capitalistically, which is, a, I mean, can be a problem anyway, like, is he a la- like, should anyone have a say in how much he makes? Like, is it a percentage, but at the same I mean, time, his church, when you, you know, look at I what don't... church is supposed to be. And, like, what they act like it's going to be when they're building it, we just want to, like, save souls and bring people to Jesus. It's like, that's cool, but, like, like I just don't... At some point, like, he, he is so far gone from any Jesus archetype, right? Where, like, I mean, the whole shtick was a homeless man thing. And... and That's what I hated most about him, actually. Yeah, and just being homeless. <laughs> like, get a home, Jesus. <laughs> You're a goddamn carpenter, bitch. Build your own house. <laughs> I want a messiah that's a baller. I, I, Steven Furtick's my messiah. Yeah, why not? I mean, he's he can uh, really repeat himself over and over and over again in, in a passionate way, and that's cool.
0: Like I have not listened to him very much, but his face is so irritating to me. Like he looks like if he wasn't doing the, tr- the pastoring deal, he would be like a YouTube pickup artist. Yeah. Like a guy that gets on there and talks about how to get girls that are above your pay grade and stuff like that. Oh, like for he's sure. got Dude. that douche look to him.
2: I mean, he, what I think most mega, like you have to be a level of, I, I, and this doesn't have to be good or bad. Like being a narcissist is just a legitimate diagnosis and you can either, you know, be a good person and a narcissist or a bad person. So like, right. Regardless, like, but you have to be, you have to be a narcissist to be a mega pastor, right? I mean, do you oh, think? Th-
0: yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, theres it's just a certain type of person that pushes their way to the front,
2: you know? And if he wasn't a pastor, like if he wasn't a Christian and his life wasn't built around that, like no doubt in my mind, he would be um, like a marketing guru and be making as much as he is now at some like firm. You know what I mean? Like like, there's no denying like that charismatic people like that. Like he's going to build something wherever he goes. And unfortunately he just picked Christianity.
0: <laughs> yep. Lucky us. What a perfect representative of uh, American Christianity.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
0: So uh, April. So we, we had April on at the end of last week and, uh You know, she posted... April has a big social media following. She's got, you know, several hundred thousand people between Instagram and Facebook and stuff. And so she posted about the episode on her Facebook page. Instagram's usually pretty tame. Like, she's weeded out most of the annoying people from Instagram. Okay. But, uh, dude, her Facebook comments are so irritating. And, like, I kind of was, like, going back and forth on the podcast facebook page and and commenting back to some of the people that were there and first off like half the people didn't read the description of the episode or look at the podcast at all like uh people who are of the christian persuasion tended to just assume that this was her like evangelizing and proclaiming her faith publicly yeah (laughs) and then you got the the complete opposite end of the spectrum like reddit atheists who immediately just start bashing her for being like uh, a christian or you just oh my gosh it was so annoying
2: yeah it's like one of them was like oh wow cool nice to know you joined a death cult think you're still okay i guess but (laughs) yeah what a quippy line you funny guy you're a funny guy it's worth noting for people who don't know and who are just listening to the episode and not like checking up on any of the you know links, whatever we shared some of her social stuff like she has a big it isn't just like you know if I posted some dumb stuff and a couple of people were like had something dumb to say um, like she has a lot of followers on both Facebook and Instagram. so it's not just like me with my purse on my personal account like 200 something followers and people saying something dumb or my few hundred friends on facebook that i've accumulated over the course of my life like these are a lot so like i mean that's when you start getting like i don't know if you have i don't know if any like if you follow a news source or anything like that like i follow bbc on facebook whenever they post anything especially political like you just hit comments And you just watch people make assumptions and be idiots publicly for everybody to see. And it's like that level. Like she has enough followers where like you're going to just get people who word vomit on Facebook because they can't not just start like they get fidgety fingers when they see something and everyone needs to hear their opinions. Well, yeah. And I think so.
0: One of the things that Sam and I have talked a lot about since starting the podcast and interacting with people and stuff you know everybody kind of has their own spot like everybody who's an ex-evangelical quote unquote has a different like taste in their mouth about Christianity. Right. Uh, and they range from yeah, I'm not into it anymore, but you know all my family is and I think it's great and all that to people who are adamantly against it. And you know you can't blame people who were hurt by the by, the church, you know, for being you know, pretty raw about it. It's understandable. Right. But, you know, it's listening to people talk sometimes and just the <laughs> like 100% certainty with which they say things, you know, like uh, this other girl that's a cosplayer and just seems like a really nice person had commented and, and she referred to herself as a person of faith. She didn't say anything about, uh, you know, what faith or or to what level or anything just said like, hey, you know, I'm a person of faith and I had a very different type of experience. And wow, that's crazy that you went through all that, you know, it sounded like she went to a pretty moderate church growing up. And I think it yeah. was a black church, which I yeah, just tend to be better. It's just, yeah. how it is
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, uh, you know, she had mentioned that she was a, that she was a person of faith. And this guy comes back and he says, uh, the way I see it being, being, a person of faith is similar to the difference between being casually racist and being a full on sheet wearing racist far too often. I see religious folk casually be bigoted versus atheists and people of different faiths and excuse it because they clearly aren't anywhere near as bad as the evangelicals we have today.
2: And I was just like, I don't even know what that means really.
0: Well, he kept coming back at because she drew a distinction between like far right, American evangelicalism, which is a
2: lot of what we talk about on this show, right? Right. That's like what we're like basically grouping together. Like when we, when we use words or phrases that sound like catch-alls, it's usually just referring to that extreme particular brand. Not that that's small. I mean, it's big and it shifted our elections and it's changing our politics and our dynamic across the country. It's the
0: noisiest for sure. Yeah. But, you know, to, to be to not make any room for anyone, especially a person who's not like this is not a person who's coming at you with their faith. Like they're not evangelizing you; they're just saying that. They, I mean, they're just they identify as a person of faith, and for you to like compare that to being like a quietly bigoted racist, it's just so ridiculous. I mean, it's so ridiculous, and. I don't know, man, it's just frustrating to look at. Like, I, I understand, like, you know, wherever you are at with the church, like, you know, that's, that's your business and you got to make peace with that, you know, but you got to leave a little room for people who just don't completely line up with you on everything.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a, it's hard to say it's worth giving the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but when when you're dealing with something as benign as I'm a person of faith, it's like you don't really have any business judging that person or what they think. They haven't expressed any specific opinions for you to be critical of, and you're just like generally being critical of anyone who identifies as a person of faith, which could be uh, – I mean, that that is every Christian, every Muslim, every – what I mean, every Jew. I don't. I wouldn't say uh, Buddhist. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if that identity. If those people count as people of faith, I'm not sure. It's. A, I think it's a religion. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It is a religion, but it's not like they don't have like it's not like a theistic, same kind of like theistic bent as you know your Abrahamic religions. But it's as much of if, a philosophy as it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. So, but generally, people who talk about being a person of faith, it. I feel like that more has a root in your Abrahamic faiths, but. Those look so different across the globe. And, you know, I think a good parallel is to say, like, uh, who's the um, god damn, it's slipping my mind. Who's the prominent atheist who just like is kind of xenophobic? Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, uh, Sam Harris. Uh, Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like he's been like he's gotten a lot of shit just for saying a lot. of. I mean, he's he's said so much bullshit about Islam. He is and- very black and white uh
0: you know binary opinions about religion uh kind of like homeboy in the comments here
2: yeah and that's what's frustrating i think what's frustrating about this like you know the time that i don't know about the time that we live in but like it's unquestionable that sam harris is very smart uh but What do you do? Like, so then what? Then xenophobic people get to now latch on to anything he says and be like, well, Sam Harris says it and he's smart. Therefore, like that's I I have a I would I would say I would take issue with anyone who consistently quotes or says they fall in line with a particular person on everything. Like I've heard people be like, oh, I love that guy. I basically believe everything that he says. Like that's like those are some red flags, right? Yeah. Where you're like, you shouldn't like you should listen to other people too and evaluate things against other things. It's, it gets a little like, it gets a little weird when people just latch on to one specific figure as their full source of information.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't know. I, I totally understand, you know, I, I can identify with like, um, you know, finding a new person who you have a lot, in co- you know, identify with a public per you know, public figure or something like that and sort of following them into the weeds for a while. Yeah. But you know, you just can't lose sight of the fact that like, you know, I, I need, I need to evaluate these ideas on my own, you know?
2: Right. I mean, there's plenty of people who I've, considered who i've looked at in a way it's just like they were my guiding light at a particular point in time i guess steven furtick for instance yeah exactly steven furtick uh <laughs> but when it comes to like when it came to like faith deconstruction and reevaluation it's like you know there's a i mean th- honestly there's a lot of people in that world who are saying similar things in different ways and coming from slightly different angles but if all of those people had conversations they'd agree on most things so you know that's just going in that's because that's general academia. That's general, like liberal, not even liberal, but just academic criticism of historical Christianity looks like this, which is why you can find 15 people who are all coming from a similar perspective, but might specialize in one or two things that somebody else doesn't. And that's where you can really learn a lot more. But when someone who has a doctorate and has been in a, particular field for a long time comes around with this like fringe idea and you're like, well, they I mean they are smart and they know so they must be right and they said this is true Mm -hmm. and therefore like it's confirming the things that I feel are true. So I'm gonna go with that completely. Right. For example, I just listened to a podcast this week, um, through line NPR podcast. Uh and it's normally it takes something and goes like historically like start to not start to finish, but it takes like a a wide 30,000 foot view at a particular topic and kind of tries to track it. Um, it, Say like, start here. This is how we got to where we are today kind of thing. Uh, But for the, they did this thing where they had three academics on discussing capitalism, what it is, what they think of it. Is it good? Is it bad? And all three of them obviously were on there for a reason. They have academic credentials, they're professors at universities and they got into some arguments about the development of capitalism and how it came to be and what's responsible for it. And is it good or is it bad? And they were all like, no, that's, that's wrong because of X, Y, and Z. And the other person's like, I disagree. I think it's right because of X, Y, and Z. And then you're like, wow. Like, I don't, what do you do with, I mean, those, that you have three people all de- disagreeing significantly on something that, people are form i mean so people are formulating opinions based on what they say and whether or not they're under their tutelage or learn from them in their classes and i don't know I, so it, it's tough i mean there's a lot of there's a lot to parse out and to just latch on to one person to say that they they're saying what i like and agree with and then they're throwing in things that i can then cite to my lay people friends as evidence is like not the same as actually evaluating an opinion and coming to a conclusion Right.
0: Yeah, I I think the and the opposite is true too, where, you know, and I see this a lot nowadays is like a person has a, a belief that that is like disagreeable or something like that. And so then everything they say is thrown out.
1: And I just yeah, think yeah. like
0: yeah, looking at things point. like in those binaries. I mean, I I did that a lot when I was younger and stuff, and I, I get the appeal of it sometimes like Sometimes, you know, when you don't like someone and you're looking for reasons to throw them out, like it's easy to do and it feels good to get to disregard them. But I don't know. I just think it's 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 not a good practice. And the other thing that that popped up as a part of this and, and again, just something that you see all the time now is like because this person identified as a person of faith. It was the guy that was commenting was basically stating that like they were a part of the pro like for some reason they were bolstering the cause of like far right extremist evangelicals right by simply stating that you you know are a Christian or that you you have you believe in some Christian ideals or whatever that somehow you are strengthening these people's position over on that side. And I really don't think that's true. I mean, especially, and this is, you know, it comes to politics too, but like, you know, if you're not a part of a church officially, you're not giving your money to a church. You're, you're not voting down the line based on what that church says or what other churches say and stuff like you're really not adding to the pile You know, and it's just lazy to disregard someone or to to pigeonhole them based on that. And I don't know, that was just stuff that was like kind of weighing on my mind this week is like, you you know, we all just need to leave a little more room for people who, through their own life experience, have just come to slightly different conclusions as us.
2: Yeah, and and of course, that's still, I, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And it's still... I feel like what the go-to is for the extreme reaction to that is, yeah, but there's just some ideas that are wrong and they're worth critiquing and they're problematic and they're contributing to the downfall of society. And you're like, yes, (laughs) yes, of course. Yeah. Like I, of course that's true. That's always going to be true. But like, but leaving, there's a difference between that. There's a difference between that and then, And then legitimate disagreement from well meaning individuals who are actually trying to objectively seek truth. Uh, Or I shouldn't even say that. Is it possible for you to objectively seek it? I don't know. We're all kind of following our own experiences and seeing things through our own eyes. So there is a little bit of postmodernistic subjectivity to that.
0: Yeah. And there's. And, and along the same, like there are ideas that are just flat out wrong and, and that deserve to be critiqued, but even still, even if somebody is wrong about something, there's still value in understanding why they think that way and treating, treating ideas like they're pathogens that are just going to take root in stupid people, but not in you is just a dumb way of looking at things. It just is. Like the idea that like, I'm smart enough to sort this out, but you know, these other simpletons aren't. So this per you know, we need to just get rid of this person.
2: Right. Especially when you can't control, like, it's like we, you can see the divide in people who are like, who have like a master's degree or a college like an undergraduate degree versus people who didn't do anything after high school academically. Like everyone wants to parse things out statistically and then excuse an entire swath of population because, you know, they're just not as educated so they can't think like us. And then you get into the whole, like, so who should be making decisions for who does that mean you're the only one who should be like, do people need to take a test to vote now? Like you can't, you can make explanations for why, some people understand things the way they do based on the line of work they went into with their but the, where their education capped out. But the fact is you still live in a country with those people and they're not going away. Yeah. So dismissing it to. is going to be, it's going to, I mean, that's, I think that's ultimately what kind of resulted in getting like, a, a, not ultimately, but contributed to getting a Trump presidency in the first place was like, when you look at the, la, like the, kind of like the far left I guess the liberal side of things that take a more extreme approach to everything like that that take the equal approach of you're an idiot because you're not like me and there there's just aspects of that that the conservatives were reacting to and I think they just everyone wanted to double down and it turned out surprise surprise there were more people on the right than we expected who doubled down like when we were looking at exit polls and shit, we're like, we're good. We can say all this shit to all these people. And at the end of the day, when everyone doubles down, the left is going to win. And we didn't. And well, that sucked. But it turned out there's a lot more people who think differently and, and not spending the time to try to like figure out how to deal like i don't know i'm not sure i don't know what the answer is i don't know how you change it i don't know how you change people's mind uh i've effectively changed nobody's mind on anything at this point in my life as far as i know (laughs) so i'm not sure i just know that like there it's worth thinking about at the very least Mm -hmm. is all uh anyway i feel like we've been yammering and you know we did get a review this past week that said The first 30 minutes of this podcast are a waste of time. So at least these past like four minutes haven't been because, you know, we're 34 minutes in now. So that's great. We have four minutes of the intro. That's not a complete waste of time, but I guess we can go ahead and introduce our guest here. Uh, We'll be talking to Derek Webb. Uh, If you grew up like us, you know, Derek Webb, unless you're Casey. Casey didn't really know who Derek Webb was. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'd heard of cademan's call yeah so cademan's call like contemporary christian band they definitely had some songs that got played in church uh some worship services here and there and um then Derek webb went out solo and he kind of shook things up in evangelicalism that's the world he came out of but he always was ruffling feathers until his his big you know statement of saying naughty I mean, words yeah so uh there's not a whole lot more to say about it, other than just. And hope you enjoy the conversation we have with Derek Webb. Hey, everybody! We're back with our guest, Derek Webb. Derek, thanks so much for hanging out with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, so Derek, I'm really interested in getting. I, I want to go over some a little bit of uh, you know how you. Uh, I want to really encapsulate some of your faith journey. I know you've you've publicly processed a lot of your. Your changes but you know as someone who's kind of followed some of your music for a good number of years back at my uh, liberty university days
1: oh uh, yeah okay yeah,
2: yeah you were edgy for for us liberty kids i right? see
1: oh sure yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> um and, and then kind of follow up to the the project you're currently working on because i think what you got going on right now is is a really cool concept and I want hmm. to kind of break that down sure, uh, as well. But, you know, I kind of, let's go back to like, right kind of before you went solo. I mean, you were with Cademan's call for a long, a good number of years, 10, right? years.
0: Yeah, ten, ten years. Yeah. yeah. Were you it, like a, one of the founding members?
1: Yeah. Yep. We started the band in Houston, uh, in 92. And I was, I was, um, it was just right when we were all getting out of high school, right when we all would have been starting college. And, uh, and that was basically my college experience. I mean, it was like a 10 year, a 10 year track that I was on um, with the band, but, um, (laughs) and yeah, it was about about 10 years. And then I left to start making solo music. And that was like around, uh, yeah, two early two thousands. Yep.
2: Yeah. Did you, so, did you grow up in like youth group and, and kind of have that connection to faith? Like before you got connect started with uh Cademan's call.
1: I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've always lived in the South. I grew up in, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, and I live in Nashville now, but I spent a good, almost 15 years in uh, Houston in between. And, um, and I was in Houston from like, let's say seventh grade through my kind of mid twenties. And, um, grew up going to church, not super religious family, but, um, my dad grew up Catholic. My mom grew up Baptist. And so they raised us Methodist. Um, (laughs) so that was kind of the compromise. And I was confirmed in the Methodist church, went to all the youth group, you know, kind of stuff. It's a very, it was a very conservative church. It was United Methodist and, um, and, uh, real formal. And, um, and then, um, uh, was in uh, Young Life during high school, which is a parachurch organization. Yeah, for young high school life. kids. Yeah, and so I was kind—I of, got roped into that, and and that was a great experience. And went to all their camps during the summers and all that stuff during p- about my second half of high school. Um, did Young then, Life have yeah.
2: that like youth group vibe, but for Very. maybe
1: not Christian
2: kids? Like they tried to do a yeah, lot. Yeah, that's oh, that's kind of
1: what it was. That's right. Yeah, yeah, because it was parachurch, and so. Um, there was no kind of, um, at least in, in my, uh, in, in the part of Houston where I was, it wasn't affiliated with any kind of church. And so there wasn't really any path to getting you into a local church necessarily. Um, it was just like, you could just come Monday nights to young life, young life club and then do the ski retreats and and do the summer camps and do the, you know, and all the, whatever they were doing. And honestly, it was like, I think it's a pretty decent gateway drug for a lot of kids. Um, yeah. And it definitely was, um, scratching, scratching an itch for me socially, um, that I think I probably, I probably would have gotten that, uh, out of some kind of youth group kind of experience, but, and, and I, but I feel like I had plenty of that when I was younger. And so I definitely kind of knew what that was all about. Um, and through the sixth grade, I went to a private Christian school. So that felt like youth group almost all the time, you know, like all the time. And, oh, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I was certainly, I certainly grew up familiar with the vernacular and I, and, and, you know, uh, uh, spending very regular time in church, not just on holidays, you know, so I, I grew up real familiar with it and honestly, it was a, it was all a pretty decent experience for me. It was a, I've got a lot of friends who, um, have had not great experiences with, and, um, they don't speak fondly about, um, their church experiences growing up, but I, I got pretty lucky in that regard. And, and the, the young life, uh, folks who I was palling around with during high school and just a little bit after were just really good people. They were great role models and they were, they were thinkers and, um, you know, so i was i I think I got pretty lucky when it comes to kind of my adolescent faith experience was yeah. a pretty good one, yeah,
2: yeah it I,
0: was like a real measured like uh grounded version of of Christianity like it, it wasn't a heavy conservative like mm-hmm. right wing hardcore not at all no. like yeah did.
1: and I think it probably helped that my parents weren't like my parents would probably tell you that they had conversion experiences as a result of talking to me and my brother, my one brother, who's older than me, um, who, who definitely talked me into going to young life. He was real involved in young life. And, um, and they would probably tell you that my brother and I kind of, uh, talked them through that, you know, but growing up, they took us to church and whatnot, but there weren't like the typical, um, there was nothing like the typical Southern Christian values, operating in my house. And I'm not saying that as a dig at my parents so much as it's a compliment. Like it, there there was no, I mean, my parents were conservative politically, but that's because they were upper upper middle class. It wasn't because they were, uh, uh, Christians. And so, um, yeah, so I didn't have a lot of that. Like there was no like taboo on, um, alcohol and dancing and whatever, all the, you know, it, it, it was, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, um, it was fine, you know. It wasn't. I mean, I, it's not like we were all super close or anything. I was definitely a discipline case all through <laughs> my, at my adolescence. But um, yeah, but it was fine. It was a fine experience. Of in, in terms of like the faith component, yeah, it was fine.
2: Yeah, I feel similarly in a lot of ways because I mean, I, there was a. I think there's a lot more of that conservatism being tied to your Christian faith, um, yeah. maybe than your. It sounds like maybe you got. Um, yeah, but. You know, I didn't have. The, I mean, yeah, I have friends as well who look back on their time in the church very unfondly, and I, I'm yeah. sure that has a lot to do with depending. I mean, depending on you know where you are, how you turned out, what you know your gender is. But I, um, yeah. it is easy for me to be like I didn't have any real traumatic church experience, and my processing out of it was like a very slow, gradual hmm. thing. So like, yeah. and it, it seems like it was for you too. Like, I mean, as we as I've, you know, heard through your music, but when you were doing Cademan's call, was it, was there this feeling of, um, I mean, obviously it was, you know, CCM and you were in that world and there's a lot of uh, choices that might not be your own in the way that you, you have to put out certain types of music that's marketable in certain ways. But Mm -hmm. um, did you have any, objection to, to those types of things, that the faith aspect of that, did you start having like processing your faith in, in new ways during Cademan's call? And is that what led hmm. to you going solo?
1: Well, um, not altogether. Um, I mean, the thing about Cademan's that was interesting is, um, that, uh, we spent, so this was in the early nineties. So this was like half our career was pre-internet. And that's yeah. one, that's one significant thing. But, um, but the, 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 the main thing was that, um, you know, we spent the first half of our career or, or, uh, the, the first, at least third of our career, totally indie. So we were just a Houston band and kind of playing in the Houston scene a little bit. And then, we're touring around to all the Texas colleges. And so, I mean, we weren't ever, we really never saw ourselves as like a faith-based thing or like a Christian band, really. Like we were pretty much Mm. all somewhere on the spectrum of Christianity or, or conservative, you know, evangelicalism or whatever. But, but I don't know that we really saw that as like the rule as much the, the grid through which we were kind of doing it. It like, it was a big part of it just because it was a big part of who we were at that time. And we were all just like coming into our own versions of the faith that we had been practicing or or whatever through our adolescence and high school. And so there was a big uh, emphasis on that for us personally. And therefore it came out in the music because it was just of interest to us. It was just a thing that we were preoccupied with during that time. And so we were writing about it and we were looking for music that was, um some expression of uh who we were and we weren't really finding it. And so our instinct was to make what we couldn't find and needed. Um, And so that's kind of how we so I feel like we kind of backed into it. We mostly, like I said, were a college band. Mm -hmm. Um, We, you know, I most of the songs I was writing were not explicitly about my faith. A lot of them were about girls. Uh, like I always used to say that I, I, that hundred percent of my songs were about really about two things, uh, about God and women, um, which were the two things that I understood the least about (laughs) the two things I was the most curious about and had the least about information about. And, um, so I, um, but that, but it was never like a, a rule that, I mean, I had a ton of songs that were just love songs or breakup songs or heart or, you know, lack of love songs or whatever. And then also some that veered into the lane of bringing my spirituality into it, just cause that was such a big, I couldn't really talk about that stuff without getting kind of philosophical. And so, um, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until, and so we were just indie for like a long time. We put out two indie records and did really well as an indie band actually in Texas. Like we had sold 60 or 70,000 records indie and, and this was before the internet. And oh, so wow. like we were literally selling them physical CDs and tapes out of our trunks and vans and (laughs) and so we and we were touring regionally and buses like all over the place down there and that was and then we got and then we started getting courted by record labels and i think that the labels that were interested in us were ones that were imprints of big christian labels because they understood how to potentially market us and so that so it was really more their choice of how they positioned us and then we wound up getting songs on the radio, which we didn't ever think we would. And the and the label and everybody told us we wouldn't ever have radio as part of our kind of thing, but we did really well, surprisingly on the radio. And it was like a shift going on in Christian music at that time. Cause what we were doing was kind of, was really, was a little grittier and it wasn't quite as polished and, and it was like acoustic kind of folk rock. It was like, we were trying to be the Indigo guys, you know I mean? It was like, that's yeah. what we loved and we're emulating. And And so, but then all of a sudden there was like these big shifts happening in what was on the radio and what was popular. And all of a sudden we kind of got swept up in that wave a little bit and that worked to our favor. And then because we got a bunch of songs on the radio, that just started to trickle through our business infrastructure. And suddenly the label or the booking was like, all right, now that you guys have big songs on the radio, you have, you know, you can't play these little 1200 seaters at colleges. We need to put you in these 3000 seaters and churches now. And so we were like, Oh, well, okay. I mean, if we're going to sell more tickets or whatever. That's cool. Huh. So they just started, bo- and we still played a lot of colleges, but we just started playing a lot of churches. And then we started playing all the summer, the big summer festival, Christian festivals and stuff like that. So it just became an association or whatever that started to happen, but it wasn't like something that we were intentionally doing. It felt kind of natural, the progression of it to us. Hmm. And we didn't love it, and I certainly never loved being known as a Christian band. And we always, anytime we get a question about it, we would always completely deconstruct the question immediately. Um, yeah. People how, usually how were pretty so? sorry they'd asked. Well, we would. Ju- I mean, usually we would just say, "Well, they like, so you know they would start talking about us in in this category and in terms of Christian music and whatever." And we would just kind of, it's still the same thing I'd say now, if it, if it ever comes up, yeah. like, well, I like, there's just no such thing. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's a fi- That's a, that's a, a fiction of the market. Like to say Christian music, there's no such thing as Christian music. Like the, uh, the word Christian when applied to anything other than human being is a marketing term. There just yeah. simply hmm. cannot be Christian music, not as the way that we understand Christian people. And, and, and if we do want to have some definition for Christian people, which I would assume would be. The people, the redeemed, like redeemed people, people who, and I'll just be very narrow and conventional here and say people who believe in Jesus and are therefore going to heaven are forgiven by God and go into heaven or whatever. Mm. And, um, if that's the case, you can't say that about anything else. You can't say that about education or retail stores or breath mints or music. Um, or colleges, it just can't be true of anything else. There is I definitely
0: not, think they've tried. I, <laughs> I know I've oh, seen Christian breath mints. Oh, they <laughs> the tried.
1: No, that's the whole point. You're right, testaments. That's the whole point. And Christian retail store, but but as <laughs> though in this retail, it, it's as though like or these radio stations. It's like come into our retail store, and everything here has been been pre vetted for your spiritual benefit and nourishment. So just lower all your discernment. and Just come on in and consume at will. And it's like. Dude, do you not get that we are just as likely to lie to you as anybody else? Like, yeah, right. like this stuff is not all inherently right, true, good, beautiful, redeemed. Like, this is not the only; these are not the only songs that are going to be in heaven. I mean, these are this is not the only the only culture that's going to appear in the new new heaven and new earth. If you believe in that sort of thing, not according to the Bible. So it's like, just because something got rubber stamped, doesn't make it right, true, good, or beautiful. That's and so it. You know what I mean? And so we would just kind of say, like, what are you even talking about? Like, there is no such thing as Christian music. So how could we therefore be doing it? Like, we are maybe Christians, we're people who identify a certain way, and any art we might make, if it's, if it's an expression that we're being honest about, then it's going to have the fingerprints of our worldview and the grid through which we look at the world on it, but it cannot be inherently right or good or beautiful or redeemed. So it's not Christian music. Like, we just don't know what you're talking about. And then, of course, they'd be really sorry they asked. But um anyways, but so that's what I mean. Like, you know, it's like like, we don't I we don't we didn't let people get away with questions like that because it seemed lazy.
0: That's a great way of looking at it because I I really feel like the way that some of those things are set up, it's it's just a setup for failure for everyone. It is because like, you know, I, I remember like in, in the, you know, youth group days and stuff like that, you know, you'd buy a Christian album, quote unquote Christian album. Yeah. And if there was a song on there that wasn't like explicitly about Christianity, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if there was a song about relationships or something on there, it was almost kind of like viewed with suspicion, like what is sure. this doing here? You know, no, it's, it's out of
1: place. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then when you do find that like someone isn't what you've built them up to be, you know, whether it was through, you know, they were purposely misleading people in the way that they marketed themselves or just because, you know, you applied these standards that you thought up to those people that you don't really have much connection with. It was almost like a betrayal on all sides, you know, and totally unnecessary.
1: I mean, but imagine being a professional practitioner of a religious faith, but like being a professional at it, like, you are a professional Christian. I mean, cause that's what all these bands, that's what was happening. It's like, we're all a bunch of, we're all professional Christians and they're expecting us to be better at it or something or, or more informed about it yeah, or educated like on it than it's everybody like else.
2: Expectation that it's all like, it's all missional, that the purpose is that you're doing it. That's right. For the Lord.
1: And that's, and, and that's the big, that was the big disconnect. And that was the thing that we initially, that we eventually had to clear up for people Because, and that was the other thing is they would ask us about our, I'm using air quotes now, but they would ask us about our ministry and they would compliment us on our (laughs) ministry and we would, and we would stop them again and deconstruct the question and say, what are you talking about? Like, this isn't ministry. We're professional singers and songwriters and musicians. My brother who lives in Lincoln, Nebraska is a, uh, is a, uh, family care, uh, doctor. And, um, is, is he a believer in Jesus? Yes. Is he a professional Christian? No, he's a professional health, uh, or a caregiver. And, and so why, so d- when he goes in to do his job every day, it's not to evangelize people. It's to provide excellent health care. Now, if there are a- ancillary or incidental opportunities for him to talk about his faith, people ask questions, I guess, yeah, you want to be ready for questions. You want to talk to people and be honest and vulnerable with them and tell them your story. But that's not why, why it's not why he goes and does it every day. And in the same way, like I show up to this job to hopefully write and perform songs with excellence, to do it as good as I can do it. And if something happens about me getting to tell my story and influence somebody in their choices or whatever, uh, that's incidental. It's ancillary and it's not, it's not the reason I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can certainly do it that for that reason. Like if you want to have a, 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 some work you do and your goal is to basically build it like a Trojan horse and try to work it to where it gets, it, it, it makes, it creates and affords you opportunities to evangelize to people and kind of bait and switch with some religion. That's fine. That's a choice you can make and you can do it that way. And a lot of bands do, but that's not what we were doing. And so it was not ministry and it comes back to like what it's like the, the decision matrix that you have about the work you're doing. And we would never be like, well, what's, should we or shouldn't we play this show? Should we or shouldn't we perform at this festival? Should we or shouldn't we do this or that? It was never like, well, what's going to serve the ministry best? It was like, well, like is it a good opportunity? I mean, does it pay well? Is it a good is it a good slot? Is it a good time slot? Is it a good? Yeah. It was I mean, we're professional musicians. Yeah. And um so there's a lot of confusion. There was always a lot of confusion. And I always used to say that when bands and artists had confusion over what was ministry, and what, what, what was what was vocational ministry, and what was vocational professional musicianship. When there's confusion over that, you wind up with everybody not able to do their jobs, because you wind up with these um, worship bands that don't really worship, and rock bands that don't really rock, because they're all <laughs> confused and self-conscious about thinking they're supposed to be each other. The yeah. rock bands think they're supposed to be more worshipful, so they sabotage the rock, and the worship bands think they're supposed to be more rocking, and so they sabotage the worship. And it's like, everybody figure out what your fucking jobs are and go do them and do it with excellence. Do it in a way as though you're serving the Lord or whatever, you know, like build, go build the kingdom. But we don't all have to do it the same way. And we certainly, uh, it, it should not be presumed that if you are a practitioner of a certain religion, that your job is going to be uh, vocational ministry. That's just, that's a totally different set of gifts. Um, it's a totally different set of skills than I've got.
2: Yeah. That, man, that must've become a part of the job that got draining then, you know, if you, I mean, if you start this out to do music because it's what you're passionate about and you're yeah. playing around and and you're playing in bars and doing local shows and, and you're building your own name for yourself and taking it different places and, and, and to feel like you've been kind of pushed into, I mean, I, I assume. Well, it just makes the music feel lot.
1: secondary. Yeah. And that's what, that's the bump. That was the thing is like, like this, the music is the most important thing that we're doing. Because if the music sucks and if our performances suck, then even if we were trying to evangelize you, that wouldn't work. It's like what Thomas Merton said in uh, New Seeds of Contemplation. He's like, if you want to be a poet and apostle, be known first as a great poet. Because if you're a, a lousy poet, it's gonna it's gonna um, reflect it poorly on your faith. But if you're a great poet, it can only lend credibility. So it's like. You know, our, our thing was like, we always wanted to be great. We wanted to do our jobs well. And so when people talk about it, like ministry, it makes the music seem secondary and it was never secondary to us. It was primary always.
0: Did you, uh, so obviously that's not what some, some people wanted to hear, you know, especially like you start talking about Christian labels and stuff. Did anybody ever talk to you guys about like messaging when you get asked questions like that or anything?
1: Right. Um, no. And the reason was because there were, we were like a little gang. There were like six or seven of us in the band. And we had just like any band, especially any band, any young band, we were all in our early twenties, mid twenties. And we, I mean, God knows we played, you know, 300 shows a year for a couple of those years. And, and we were together 24 seven. We were going through all this together. We were developing our personalities and our worldviews together. And, So we really had each other's backs, even though we were really at each other's throats a lot like family, like family do, we had each other's backs. And so like, and we were just loudmouths. We had a lot of loud personalities in the band and, and we were real opinionated. And I think the labels and all those people just got quick, a quick read on us that there was just no point in it. And, and they, there was no point in trying to tell us how to do a thing because we had a really pretty strong sense, not of our own individual identities at that point yet. Um, I wouldn't find that for a handful more years, but we had a very strong band identity. And so Mm -hmm. we just, you couldn't really tell us to do, you couldn't wrangle us like, and so, cause no matter what you told us, half of us wouldn't be listening. And the other half were the ones who would take over the interview next time. And who didn't hear what you said and nothing would ever change. So it's like, you know, we were never under any kind of pressure about it. And I think the fact that we spent a handful of years indie and had a lot of success at it, we really kind of came in with our chests out to our first record deal and our first label relationship and booking PR relationships. We kind of knew that we had the support of like, we were, we were filling a gap and we knew that we were like, this, all the, there, there were like a lot of kids in college who were like us who were young and they were thinkers, kind of pseudo-intellectuals and maybe spiritual and kind of seeking a little bit and breaking away, detaching from some version of some spirituality that they inherited from their parents and their adolescence. And they were kind of finding their own way and, and were not finding soundtrack for that journey. There was none. There was a lot of music for little kids, for youth groups, and a lot of music for yeah. adults. And they weren't finding a lot of soundtrack. And we weren't either, which is why we were making it. Because we were, like I said before, and this has been like my MO creatively for a lot of years, is what I need and can't find, I make. That's even my kind of entrepreneurial MO. That's why I started Noise Trade years ago. Um, you know, Because I was looking for a way to distribute music for free. I couldn't find it, so I started a company. And so it's like, and so that was, uh, it, as it turns out, that there were a lot of um, people just like us out there who were looking for what we were looking for, not finding it, and therefore resonated really deeply with what we were doing. And we knew that that, that wind was at our backs. And so we kind of went in, kind of bowed up a little bit, and we kind of were real demanding. And it was kind of good that we were, like, because we we didn't let anybody uh, boss us around or tell us how to do anything. We, we really did things our way, because we really felt like people had already responded to our way, and were already it was already confirmed and vindicated that our way was good because we were getting a lot of feedback and a lot of, uh, you know, and, um, we were already a handful of years into it and already sold a bunch of records. So you couldn't really, it was just too late. You couldn't, you couldn't mold us at that point.
2: Sure. Yeah. It sounds like you guys had a different experience than some other artists that got tied into CCM where they felt oh, for sure. very, yeah. um, very beholden. To the Yeah, we had a lot of friends. Yeah, culture. and that's
1: their stories. And I have a lot of friends to this day who have those stories.
2: Yeah. So if if you didn't feel that way and you felt like you had artistic expression with mm-hmm. Cavans, what um what was the pivot for you to want to go solo?
1: Yeah, well, so what's interesting was we eventually did it to ourselves. Because what happened was we came in and we had um very independent-minded and we you know, we we did exactly what we wanted, and it worked. It was great, and we things we just success came really easy for us, and we did really well for a few years. And then what sort of happened was we were continuing to push the way we wanted, and to continuing to make the kind of records we wanted. And and you know, uh, an old friend once told me that there's two things that can break up a band, and that's success and failure. <laughs> Um, and especially in that order. So it's like, we, we had done really well. And then we just weren't doing quite as well, um, on a few records later. Like our first record did super well. Second record did really well. Our third record didn't do quite as well. And so all of a sudden what happens to a lot of bands is you get in the platform building and maintenance business. And so at first you were in the world changing mm-hmm. business and like you were just in the, you know, tear the walls down business and you were in the provide soundtrack for, you know, the people who have non-business and all these great, you know, virtuous things. And then you get a little success at it and you actually do it a little bit and you, you're, you're, you put on a little platform and then all of a sudden, if you're not careful, you'll get into the platform building and maintenance business. And that's what happened to us. And we, and it's, and you start to say things to yourself like, man, like if we could just, if we could just get you know, the kind of people listening and pay attention. Like we had a couple of years ago, think about what we could do on that platform. Like think about, you know, if we get up there, like that, you know, we've got all these ideas we want to disruptive ideas. We want to make songs about, but, but there just aren't as many people paying attention as there were two years ago or last year. And so we need to like spend a minute investing in our platform and securing what platform we have. So we're going to make some, some calculated and intentional compromises in order to secure and heighten the platform. And then once we get it up where we know we can do a lot of good with it, then we're going to get on it and we're going to really take some risks. But here's the problem is any artist who has that thought and who goes down that road, you wind up building a tremendous platform that you never ascend. And I've just Hmm. seen it time and time and time and time again. And so, because you're too afraid of it because the higher platform gets, the more, the higher the stakes go and the more friends you know, jobs and livings are tied to you doing well and the pressure starts stacking on and you just, you're not willing to take the kind of risks that you took when you started. And so you have to set yourself up to be able to take risks. And it's not easy to do that. It takes real intention to structure a creative uh, uh, career that's tolerant, that's, that's highly tolerant of risk. It's really not easy to do and also succeed enough at it to make a living. It's, it's, it's tricky. And so what had happened was Cademan's just got into the platform maintenance and building business. And, and so I started to write some songs and they're their own stories about why my writing started to take a turn. But, but I started to write songs that were just, I found my voice again, or I found my risk again. I found like, I found that, that started to stir a little bit. Like I really wanted to write some songs that I knew were going to be kind of gnawing on and biting the hands that were feeding us. And you don't spend 10 years playing in churches and, and back hallways of Christian music festivals and things like that without, you know, kind of seeing where the bodies are buried and how the sausage is made. Yeah, if you need more yeah. metaphors, let me know. But it's like, <laughs> you, and, and so you have stories and you have things you're like, man, nobody's talking about some of this. And it's like, nobody's talking about the way that like how terribly the, uh, the Christian Institution socially in the world uh, fumbles with loving and caring for people who are complex, yeah. and um, uh, and and no one's talking about the ways the unhealthy and really self destructive ways that the church's politics are tied up in nationalism in a really weirdo way, and like and and it's like there's no separation of church and state you know, in evangelicalism. And so you start to kind of notice all this stuff and I wanted to start writing songs about it. So I started writing songs that Cademan's just wasn't comfortable performing. And so, uh, I was just going through some stuff in my life that kind of woke some of that risk back up for me Mm -hmm. and made me feel like I was, I should and could take risks like that in my songwriting. And the band really liked the songs, but just was not willing for me to perform them on the band's stages. And so it was just kind of a weird predicament. So they really loved the songs. They supported me, but they were like, you know, like, cause I mean, so the first one was this song called Wedding Dress and, and I had, it's got its own story, but yeah. I had written, I had written this song and it was a Cademan song for God's sake. I was in the band still. I didn't know I was, I didn't know that was the first song of my solo career. And it was, it, it's what sparked it. But like, you know, they, they didn't want, they weren't comfortable with me playing it because it was going to pose a risk to the platform. Sure and i but, but I get that now, you know, like I get that that was not what they signed up for, and it was a huge risk to pull these other six you know five or six people plus dozens of people who worked with and for us at that time into this risk that I felt like I needed to take, and so the band was kind of encouraging me to you know maybe when we were off the road and what you know whatever, and I never wanted to be a solo artist, never interested in it. I always loved being in bands, I've been in bands my whole life, but I had a strong feeling about these songs, like the songs kind of took, you know, knew where they wanted to go. And I just, it was a matter of me trusting that. And so I just realized, you know, I can't do both. I just can't do both and do either of them. Well, I can't do Cademan's. It was just too demanding. Yeah. Um, It required too much. And I was getting kind of bored with the platform business. And so I, you know, I, so I just made a change and I left a really good steady job of 10 years to go and, kind of do a startup, so to speak, and kind of, you know, get on a smaller platform so I could take more risks. And Um, that,
2: that song ended up, I don't, did it take off initially? Cause I mean, that was one of the, that was like, I remember that when that song made waves, um, it It sounds sounds
0: like it ruffled some feathers.
2: Yeah,
1: (laughs) Well, and so, so it kind of, for me it confirmed that it was probably the right decision, you know, cause that was exactly the kind of energy our band had when we started, you know, it was like that kind of disruptive, energy. Like, that's what, that's what we, and, but I understand why they couldn't have seen that as an opportunity at the time to, to do that within the band and and let's let the the band reinvent and, and churn a little bit, like, you know, churn some audience away and gain some new audience, you know, and, and kind of let there be some life cycles to it. But, um, it, it did. Yeah, it did. It, it definitely did. It had an immediate, you know, I, I don't, I can't remember a lot of times that I've played that or, or that I played that particular song in the first few years after I wrote it, that I, that it didn't get a, um, a very, uh, strong response. Mm-hmm. And it was usually one way or the other. I mean, I would literally have <laughs> half the crowd like get up and leave mid song and the other half stand up and applaud at the end. So it's like, I knew I was doing something. I knew it was on the right track.
2: Yeah. At that point. That's yeah. fun. Speaking of, uh, ruffling feathers, uh, with, what you do. I want to, okay. There was a time where you went on a tour and I'm piecing this together and I'm hoping you yeah, yeah. fill in the gaps, but there, sure. you went on a tour and you were at some point during your show, maybe in the middle of, in the middle of it, or maybe towards the end, hmm. you had made a point about, um, you, you made some point about people not giving a shit about, x y and z and i think it oh, sure. maybe had to do with the suffering of children mm. in other countries and then you made a point to say and most of the people around here are more concerned with the fact that i said shit than they are with the suffering of people in other places yeah. and yeah, I, yeah it's so i ah god did you do that at liberty university because I have Um, this memory of you being of of that happening,
1: but I feel like I might be remembering it wrong, but okay. So to be, to be fair, I want to give credit where credit's due. I, I lifted this. I stole this from Tony Campolo, who, who, who definitely did it first. Um, he, and he did this exact thing, exactly what you're it's, it was, and, and I, and I lifted it from him and did it a handful of times and then eventually put it in a song. Um, but, uh, Where it was exactly what you just described. He was at this huge inner city amphitheater doing this huge thing, speaking engagement and all these Christians gathered in and, and the whole place was surrounded by homeless people. Like they were living all the perimeter of this huge amphitheater. And he said that as he was coming in, he noticed all these people and these, you know, thousands of people who were homeless and it was, you know, were cold living on the street. And that it seemed like that would go to the core of of the mission of the people in this room, and yet it seems like most people here just don't give a shit about the poor. And he he gave a pre- he let, he allowed a pregnant pause, and then said, <laughs> and what's worse is that most of you are more scandalized by the fact that I just use the word shit than you are about the fact that there are, you know, people dying on streets within ten feet of this arena tonight, and. And then of course it's just instant karma at that point. And, (laughs) um, but, uh, no, and and I loved that story. And so, you know what, I, I really, I remember the, I remember there was a last time that I played at Liberty and I don't remember exactly what all happened, but I remember I played at the, uh, the chapel service in the basketball arena that morning. Mm -hmm. And then with Falwell senior sitting right behind me. And then I, and then I did a show that night in some kind of a gymnasium or something. But and I I really do think I probably did do that. I think was, I probably was he did. allowing
0: black students in at that point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what a great question. And I, I honestly was probably so wide eyed looking around that place. I don't remember what was going on. Um, but uh, you know it was quite an experience. You know, what's and what's crazy is I got invited back a handful of times. And um, but but that as I recall, and I, I think I did tell that story. And then I probably did. Uh, make a note that I was quoting Tony Campolo, but, um, but then ironically, I eventually wrote a song called what matters more. It was on a record called Stockholm syndrome and it kind of has that baked into it. Uh, um, It has, you know, the, that, that exact, that exact thing baked in to some poetry um, in that song. And it was a song I wrote after hearing an interview on NPR with jerry falwell senior right after he died huh um where he told this story about uh well it's a long story and i'm not going to tell it now because i i I don't want to keep monologuing but um the point is whenever i play that story what matters more i always tell a story about jerry falwell because uh, he was the some of the initial inspiration for the song oh interesting Um, but anyways so um yeah so that's interesting though that uh you know, that uh, I think that probably, I think I, that does sound like something I would have done at Liberty. And I think that's <laughs> probably for sure the reason I didn't get invited back.
0: <laughs> I, I definitely saw Corey Brandon from Norma Jean do that. I, it's the same thing. I, I think his was on accident because he looked oh, okay. a little shaky afterwards. Oh, like he but, didn't mean
1: to do it. Yeah. But, but yeah, you like, could definitely
0: say some people like,
2: Fuck, and then you have to double back. <laughs> Exactly, exactly.
0: Some nervous glancing yeah. around in the crowd. For yeah, sure. exactly.
1: Come up with some quick way to convict all these people, the fact that they're judging me before uh, I get kicked out.
2: <laughs> oh my God. So uh, Derek, I, you know, I obviously know you went through some pretty major shifts in your faith uh, over your solo career. And, you know, the honesty and authenticity that you put, I was always one of those people who was into, uh like heavier music it wasn't yeah. necessarily like like the style of music that you had wasn't it, i didn't naturally gravitate towards that but i i i was always captivated by it because of the authenticity and honesty cool. that you did and i i any artist that switches up their their sound from album to album i'm always interested in
1: i definitely do
2: uh, yeah and i thought that and that's I, a
1: symptom of having been in a band for 10 years yeah because it was every every creative decision was by committee. I mean, I would write the songs, and nobody, you know, I, nobody. The, the songs were done when I when I showed them to the band. Me and the one other guy wrote all the songs, and mm-hmm. and and. But then once I handed it over to the band, I mean, it, it, it was a democracy from there. Yeah. So you know, I that was my last say that I really got with by on my own. And, and then it was up to the band, you know, to decide how to produce it and what the sound would be and, and what everybody wanted to do. And so I, so once I was out of that band, I mean, I think that's, I'm still in a reactionary season, you know, here 15 years later um, that I've been out of that band. Uh, I'd still love making every record different just because yeah. I can.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I always find that great. I mean, one of the, the first time I was introduced, there's not a lot of people who are doing that. Uh, to be honest, I Mm -hmm. don't, the only other band that immediately comes to mind is me without you. And that hasn't always gone well for them. And it probably hasn't even always gone well for you, but the fact that you don't even care is what's even more.
1: Well, but so again, it's, it's a, it's, it's a risk taking exercise. Yeah. Yeah. And for, and for me, like I mentioned before, I've tried to be very intentional about keeping my platform very low to the ground Hmm. because I, and, and it's part of why I really lean into that part of my personality and, and songwriting instincts to continue to, I'm not afraid of provocative material. I'm not afraid of, and part of it, I think I learned to be that way because I didn't ever want what happened to Cademan's to happen to me. Sure. I, I, I wanted to I, like, uh, uh my, uh, uh, equation has been, my algorithm has been that, my goal is to turn over about a third of my audience on every record. Hmm. So every time I put out a new record, I'm kind of aiming actually like it's part of my metric for success that I lose about a third of my audience over it. Either the, either the sound or the content I want to lose about a third and I want to gain about a new third back. And I just want to stay at the same level. I don't want more fans. I I don't want, I don't want more total fans. I would, I'd be happy to lose some and gain some and break even on every record, but with it, as it is, I'm able to do exactly what I want to do when I want to do it. Nobody informs me about what I can and can't do. And if I was to go out and sell a half million records by accident next year and become really popular, then I would have sabotaged my career and I'd be miserable. <laughs> so like, I really, cause I had 10 good years of pretty decent success, like playing, you know, a thousand to three, four, five thousand. We played for a quarter of a million people out on one stage one time. It wasn't just our show, but wow. the point is, like, I got to do that for ten years. I, I got to kind of get a sense of what that's like, and it was great. It was super fun, uh, and it was good money, and everything was. It was, but I wouldn't trade what I have now in terms of my artistic autonomy and independence um, for more money. Um, and a little, for things to be a little easier for me, i would rather than be hard and be able to do what I know I I need and want to do, mm-hmm. um, creatively. And so that's been a very intentional thing.
0: It's so contrary to like most of what you hear, you know, in the, not just in the music industry, but really yeah. anywhere.
1: Well, I think that it's like, I think it, I'm just in a peculiar position because I, because I have the luxury of having come out of 10 years of great success with it, with something that's not me. It was something I was a part of. And so I I'm you know when I talk to my young artist friends here in Nashville and I try to talk to them about the importance of of really going small. Like go as small as you can possibly. Um and then let it scale slowly from there if it scales. But really nail like go as far into the most peculiar parts of your perspective and voice as you possibly can. Be your most full self though so that the, so that the people who are as peculiar and as, and and peculiar in the same ways as you can find you as soundtrack for their lives that maybe only you can make. Um, that's not going to be true of hundreds of thousands of people, but it could be true of hundreds of people or thousands of people, um, that you're, that if you can speak with your unique and kind of, uh, 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 Peculiar and particular artistic voice, the collection of the way you see the world and your collective experiences and personality. If you can really do that well and vulnerably, in a way that people can find you and notice that you're like them, um, then you're going to attract a really loyal and and sustainable small group of fans to yourself that you can go with into the sunset. I mean, like you can you can have a career for the rest of your life, but it's a blue collar career. It's middle class. You're middle class. And so as long as you're comfortable with that and, and if you're not, and you get into music to become either rich or famous or both, I would just recommend you a, a different line of work because, um, you know, on the list of jobs to, to, to pursue, to become rich and famous, a career in music is not in the top 50 of those jobs. Yeah, right. It's just that you've, it's just that the, the top 0.01% of artists who have gotten insanely rich or famous doing it are the only ones are, are the, you, you definitely know all their names and you've definitely seen those people, but the vast majority of people who make a living at this, um, are blue collar. And so if you're looking to become the next Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga or something, you need to get into a different line of work. Like go, go and try out for a reality TV show, <laughs> go and do something, you know, stupid in public and have somebody film it. I mean, there's so many ways to become famous um, that don't require what music requires. And, and the chances are if, uh, the only way to be happy at is if you're happy being middle-class. So, and I am hundred percent, you know,
0: yes. yeah, this is like person that I know they're and they're young, you know? Yes. So, I yeah. mean, you can't really hold it against them completely, but it, their dream is to become, uh, an influencer <laughs> and, <laughs> and they talk about it all the time, you know, like, uh,
1: like, which is a job that didn't exist, you know? 10 years ago or what, you know, or, 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 or more. And, yeah. you know, and, and, but here's, what's interesting about it. And I get it, but that's another, I would want to sit with them and deconstruct that a little bit. Cause it's like, okay, so you want to be an influencer. I get that. But what would you, what, what ideally, what would be the quality of your influence? And so, Cause I can answer it,
0: that. Low.
1: Well, you, well <laughs> right. Exactly. Because the thing is like, I have no ambition to be a quote influencer by, by the definition that I think any of us could all agree to without defining it. And, and yet to a small group of people. And I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I say this without being self-conscious about it because um, I'm not good at hardly anything. Um, but the few things I'm good at, I'm really super good at. And, and I, and I, I'm, it's not many things, but I, um, there is a very small group of people to whom I am a huge influence. And so I have somehow backed my way into a career as an influencer. Now it's a very small influence that I have, but it's maybe a significant enough influence that it goes on to spread in a way, because maybe some of those people go on to influence many more people. It's like uh, Michael Scott, you know, having, having talked to Dwight and Dwight talks to a thousand people. And so he feels like he, you know, captured, <laughs> he, he, he held, he captured the attention of a guy who captured the attention of a thousand guys. And so it's like, um, but you know, you know what I mean? It's like, you don't really know where that's, how that's going to manifest and that. But if you try to influence a shit ton of people, a tiny bit, you're, you'd be lucky to influence any of them. If you try to deeply influence a small group of people, you'll probably influence millions of people.
0: What's um, a- You
1: just won't know it.
0: How do record labels and stuff respond to that setup? Because I mean, it, yeah. I feel like there's probably it's any business, any business where, mm-hmm. you know, growth is is valued so highly like sure. they are they do record labels value like the slow and steady pace or do they just like, mm-hmm. hey, man, if you're not if you're not going to be the 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 cash cow, then we don't really right. have much use for you.
1: Well, it depends on the label. There's so many. And, and to talk about labels as one group is like talking about, I mean, it's just such, it's such a, a an op- oversimplification because there are indie labels that really do still value the slow growth model. Like, you know, um, but that's not the way the musical world works at this point, for sure. Like if you don't prove yourself and not only break even, but hit a profit in a business, in a single business quarter, then you're dropped in most labels. But Hmm. um, there are a lot of labels that, that still believe in the, uh, the creative development model that gave us our best bands, the best artists of all time did not have to prove themselves in a business quarter. They, they put out two or three or four, not great records before they figured out, figured themselves out and found their voices and figured out. I mean, you two have put out how many records for the Joshua Tree? REM put how many records out, you know, before? I mean, Radiohead, I mean, go down the line. Sure. Like, yeah. a, I mean, any great band, any great artist, I mean, even way further back. I mean, I mean, but anyway, you like anybody, any artist who came through the old model, they had the time to really develop and people would. would go with them and would give them the space and the time and you'd have two or three records to figure yourself out. And then if it wasn't happening, then it wasn't happening. But um, nowadays, if your first single in the first three months doesn't happen, then they won't (laughs) release your second. And so, so you have to find the right people to work with. And I did find great people to work with early and they definitely had that vantage point and that, that, that was the trajectory they saw for, for me, and they knew that I was not going to be like one of these guys in a, as a solo artist who was mm-hmm. going to come out guns a blazing onto pop radio or something and, and skyrocket. Like, that's just not my thing. And if anything, if I, if I had wrote, accidentally wrote a song that had huge potential for that, I would definitely sabotage it in the arranging and recording. Honestly, in order to make sure it didn't happen. And I actually have done that on a few of my records. I had songs that I either had written or was recording of somebody else's that I knew the label would just be, you know, just, I knew they would want to try to put on the radio on Christian radio. And so I literally would produce them as like dirge ballads and put like a two minute instrumental section at the end You know, (laughs) and and demand they not edit it or something, you know, like I never would let it happen. Um, and so, uh, because then here's the thing, because if it did happen, they just want the best for me. Then suddenly that becomes the standard. And now we all screwed up are unspoken agreements. So I have to stay I can't ever have a big success and have that be a thing that suddenly is expected of me, even that I would expect of me. Like I've you've got to be so careful. I've definitely learned the value of putting tight guardrails around the delicate process of songwriting and vulnerability around creativity. You have to do it because if you don't and you accidentally have wild success at it, then suddenly you get into the platform building business and right. I don't ever want to go back there. You know,
0: we talked yeah. to John Steingard from
1: oh, Nelson. You yeah. Know John? Yeah. What a great guy.
0: Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah, he's great. And, and he was talking a little bit about how Christian music has changed over the years. It has. Yeah, sure. Sam and I, you know, and Sam put it as like when we were growing up, it was all about like parallel institutions. Like we have Christian hip hop, we have Christian metal, we have Christian hard rock, yes. Christian soft rock.
1: Designer imposters. And- there, there were the posters up in, in Christian bookstores saying, if you like yeah. <laughs> uh, Alanis Morissette, you'll love, you know, Jackie Velasquez or whatever it was. Uh, but yeah, exactly.
0: What? So John was saying that like Christian music as a whole, they they've kind of like shifted away from that, that model where like, you know, Whereas before they were putting out, you know, all these different Christian rock bands. Now they're kind of telling the, the the quote unquote Christian rock bands like, hey, you know, go make it in the secular realm. And Christian music is really centered around like K-Love yes. type type music.
1: Yep. Yep. I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I don't think it's, I, I think the reasoning might not be what people expect. Um, the reason that I believe it's like that is, is because the same disruption that has hit every other part of the Christian, of the music industry has hit Christian music as a genre. The only genre, by the way, that is defined by a worldview. It makes no sense. Yeah. Like, right? <laughs> I mean, like, like th- that, th- it's, like there is no other, there is no other, but uh, I- anyway, that's, I'm not going to fall down a rabbit trail, but the point is that, like records don't sell as much. There's not as much money in the music business as there used to be, um, or there is, and it's just coming from different sources. And it's been a huge adaptation, and and one that's been done pretty clumsily by most uh, 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 longtime industry people, and so um, people who are very committed to the old model and and believed, you know, for a long time that it would eventually come back, and it never did, and and they unfortunately wound up in in, an ice age that they created for themselves while the rest of us adapted. And so, um, so there just isn't the real estate to have like the physical real estate for CDs and stores. Like, you know, uh, Christian retail is all but gone. Like there are no chains of Christian stores anymore, like family Christian stores and Lifeways and, and Mardell's and like all these, like, it's not this huge retail empire that it used to be now you can't really hardly find any music really hardly anywhere because every square foot that a store puts music on, they're losing money um, unless they're selling vinyl um, and maybe even still, but like, I mean, like think about how, how few or how many fewer records are carried in the average target that used to be, Um, you know, Best Buy used to have rows rows and rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of CDs and stuff. And now they, you know, they, they've got, the top 10 of three genres, maybe, you know, so it's like, cause you're losing money. And so the business has changed. And so it used to be that there were like different, even categories of Christian radio formats. There was uh, Christian hit radio, CHR, that was more kind of, uh, where Cademans would have landed and where a lot of the rock bands and, and, and the kind of more uptempo and and younger stuff for younger, uh, uh, demos would have landed. And then there was, um, AC radio adult contemporary genre, which was more the legacy stuff and the, the solo singers and and vocal groups. And, and then there was like a few others. There was like, and so th- there were these various, there was at least some texture to it, but now it's all gotten reduced and simplified because there are just, again, there just isn't the real estate, not even on the airwaves. And so it's all had to become one thing. So it, so all Christian music can't be three or four different general expressions. Now it has to all be one thing. And what is it? What what has the best chance of succeeding? And apparently the, the market has spoken and what it is, is worship product. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what sells the best worship product. And so, and that's what's funny is that never even used to be on the radio. That didn't even used to be what the radio wanted or everything. I mean, it, it wasn't even a thing. I mean, you know, Christian music used to just be um, like mainstream music, but just not quite as good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and we didn't realize how good we had it during those years. You know, like where there'd be like a song that was seemed to be about a girl and it was really sweet, and in the bridge you'd realize it was all about the Lord, and and that was the best of it really at that time. And you know, and now all of it is the songs that people are singing in corporate worship services and and congregational, you know, moments and whatever. And that couldn't be more different than what was happening in the nineties and the early two thousands. It just couldn't be more different. I mean, that that was unheard of back then. There was no worship music on the radio back then there was no worship music was not a genre or whatever. Like that wasn't, um, but boy, that's, that's all it is now. And I think it's because people realized, because again, when you have to simplify and reduce a thing, it just, it, it's like, if you're not careful, I think people just realized, oh, the, a great way to sell and promote this music is going to be if it's the music that they're all hearing and singing in their churches, because that's a thing that's going to continue happening. And that's a huge captive audience. And so, and that's also a great way to make money because all that music is licensed. CCLI licenses all that music. So if there's public performances of it, those, those churches pay money. Mm, yeah. So that's a way for the copyrights and the songwriters to get paid. And so there's a <laughs> lot of money. So there's a lot of money there. And then also why wouldn't we want, I mean, of course they were going to want to hear their favorite songs from Sunday mornings on the radio performed by their favorite artists. So why wouldn't we have their, their, their favorite artists start recording the worship songs. And that's kind of how it started. And now that's the only thing that goes on the radio. You can't get on Christian radio. If you're not doing worship music, there is no other kind of music that goes onto Christian radio now. And, 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 but a lot of it is because it was a, a clumsy adaptation to the record business as it, as it was post disruption, post, um, you know, uh, Napster and piracy and all that stuff. That's just what happened. I mean, every industry went through it, went through some kind of a reduction period and a simple, an oversimplification period. And the result of what you hear on Christian radio today is, is the result of, of the Christian music industry having gone through that process. That's it.
0: Man, that's, man, that's the dream now though. Like be a pastor that has a collection of Jordans, twenty five thousand members. Yeah. Your church pumps out a couple of Caleb hits. Uh, you really right. get to ride the wave until your sex scandal hits.
1: <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Burn, burn hot and fast. But I mean, the thing is, like, <laughs> it's it, it's it's really true though that like that like that everybody's in. And I'm not even saying this is a bad thing. It's not. It's actually good business. It's a it's an it's an innovative business model. But um, if you really stop and think about it, but like they're all in cahoots together doing it now. So all the churches, they get these, they, they, they are now seeing bands on the radio who are professional worship bands, writing original worship music that's being performed in their local churches. And they're all making a lot of money at it. And, and so, because even, so the bands play concerts and make money, the songs are on the radio and it makes money. And then the songs are performed in churches all over the world and they make money. So now what's happening is the model is let's, get our church band, um, to like get really good and look really good and write some of their own original stuff and see if we can get them a record. Deal. And if we can't even better, what we'll do is we'll start our church, will start a record label. That's yeah. like the passion. That's like the passion model or the, or the Hillsong model. Yeah, yeah, Let, let's actually so. have our church start its own record label, sign our worship band from our church and, and, and then distribute their music. And now we're in the record. Now we're in the music business. And so now our church is making, and it's all probably tax deductible because te- <laughs> technically we're a nonprofit. And so we can make all this money um, and distribute all these songs. And, and what's crazy is the whole thing is almost like the military. It's like a version of the military industrial complex because then what happens is all these professional audio um, companies start sending catalogs to all these churches because if you're going to compete with the big boys and these guys on the radio, you're going to want the very best of in-ear monitors and, uh, uh, high-tech total recall PA systems and really kick-ass 18 speaker arrays. And you're going to want all this really cool shit. And if you don't have it, you're just not going to be able to compete on that level. So they're, so now they're coming in and selling. So it's a, so there's a whole farm business that's built up around propping up all these local church, uh, record companies and their worship bands that are winding up on the radio just to inspire, like the dominoes tipping over into more churches, doing this with more bands, writing more worship hits. Um, and all of it just really makes a lot of money. And the thing is like, that's fine. That's good business. Like just as an entrepreneur, I'm like, that makes sense. Like it's, it's, they should all be in business together. Cause you make a ton more money that way. So I'm down. I'm not. I'm not even judging it. I'm just saying I get from an evolutionary standpoint how we got here. Do you know what I mean? It so Makes sad.
2: a ton of sense. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. It gets icky to people when when you're doing it all in the name of like a you know proclaiming your faith for the world to see. Like it feels like yeah. it gets a little disingenuous when you're mixing a message that is generally grafted to eternal security and things like that. Well,
1: and kind of to. Um, you know, an upside down power structure, the least are the greatest, greatest are the least, right. the, and, and, and kind of really identifying really heavily with the poor, you know, like the, 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 the leader of your, of your, of your religion was essentially a homeless guy. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it definitely seems to all run contrary, but it's like, if you can't figure out a way to make all this money, how are you going to afford all the new kick-ass lighting systems and PAs and inner monitors and so you have to figure out a way to make it financially viable and work cuz this is how the world works. Fulfill the feel the dreams
0: method. We are in a bland music arms race. We got to take a, this seriously <laughs> a little
1: bit. But 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 here here's in my opinion like the thing that gets confused and it's really this this it's just an age-old problem is it's a confusion over church work and kingdom work. And it's it's people it's 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 people in churches not knowing the difference. What is kingdom work and what is church work? Cuz if you look at the Bible, if you look, and again, I don't really have a dog in this fight at this point because I don't identify as an evangelical or a Christian anymore, but I still care and it's still my, a big part of my community and, and I think it holds a lot of influence in the world and I'm not certain about anything. So who knows where I may be next week? And right. so I, you know, I, I want to keep up on it. But the point is, it, you know, the, the Bible is clear about when you're talking about the church, when you're talking about gathering as the church, which is, which is an institution unique in history and unique in culture, the churches. And it's the gathering of the, the believers in Jesus, arguably, I mean, this is, I'll just give it a definition for, you know, but I think most people, when you're talking about the Christian church would, would probably be okay with that. And it's it, to gather in transcendent moments of worship. And when we do that, as far as what the Bible tells us it, there, there, there is some uh, guidance and some prescription that tells us things that are, and are not appropriate during, things that we must do um, without which we're not really the church gathering and not doing the the the, the, the church's business um, and things that that we we may do and so a lot of it is preferential. a lot of it is incarnational, which means it needs to evolve into cultures and parts of the world and times and places and it, it can reflect in that way and I think that's healthy. but there's a lot of things that are just not church work. Um, you know we we have a community meal, we hear the preaching of the word we we sing songs and hymns together. We confess our sins one to one, to one another. There are things that we do. Um, there are things you can look at the early church and you can say, these are prescriptive. These are things that we do when we gather. And, and we don't want to cloud that with a lot of other stuff. Ha- for instance, having a really kick-ass retail coffee bar is not church work, right. in my opinion. I don't think that's integral to the church's work. Um, I don't think that's on that very short list of prescriptive things that the church is supposed to be busy with. um, and that could become a distraction. Now, do I think that having a really kick-ass coffee bar could be kingdom work? Of course it is. And cause kingdom work is basically the work that non-vocational ministry people are doing when they go and, uh, make the world, you know, usher in the the new heavens, new earth, where all things will be made new and all, you know, sad things will come untrue and all you know, evil things made right or whatever, like, like you can do that. That's what I was talking about before. If you're a rock band, it's kingdom work to go rock with excellence. That's kingdom. That's, that's building the kingdom. Absolutely. That's ushering the kingdom in, um, bringing it to pass, but you don't have to, that doesn't have to be church work for you. That can be kingdom work, which is a much broader category. And so it's like having a, having a really successful, profitable record label, in my opinion, can definitely be kingdom work is not church work to me. That is, that's a major distraction from church work. Dude, the early church was obsessed on efficiency. Like if you look at the, the degree to which they... The links to which they went to try and figure out, okay, what is going to be the job of the people gifted in this way and this way, and this way, to not have them distracted from doing things they may be pretty good, but at but not the best at. The people who are preaching, we have to keep them preaching. They can't be distracted by, okay, we need deacons. We need some people in these roles that can go and feed the poor and take care of these people while our other people are focused on their part of the job and their part of the work. they were they were they were like obsessively efficient about it, sure, yeah and. And and now we're like the absolute opposite. We want to do everything under one roof. We want to have a restaurant and a coffee bar and a record label and a car wash and a, and a, and a workout facility and, uh, you know, I mean, and, and, a, and a private school and a, we want to have all that stuff under one roof yeah. for God's sake. That's most of that stuff's kingdom work, but hardly any of it's church work. And it only seems yeah.
2: built out of like a narcissism of like, we do this best yeah. and we it's know what's right. It's empire building, yeah, empire building. And you want your yeah. grand and your understanding spread yeah. across. The, and it's so ironic. Yeah.
1: Because it seems as though if Jesus was about one thing, it was about turning empires upside down. Yeah. Sure. And yet here it. we are right. empire building in the 21st century. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it.
2: That's uh, <laughs> so upside down. It's funny that you say you don't have, I mean, you don't have a dog in this fight, but at the same time, I, I can hear that you care about it. And I, I do. I I know you went, I, I think, I, was it like 2019 is when you kind of had that more, your somewhat public announcement of like, this just isn't,
1: like, uh, it was like 2017, okay. I would say that that's when I came out with the fingers crossed record, which yeah. is kind of my, uh, my album of horizontal and vertical divorce. I did it all in one album. Okay. <laughs> um, cause I was going through a divorce at that time. And I was also going through a major kind of audit of all of the presumptions that I was carrying and i had carried for 30 years about the way the world works.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. And we watched, if we heard you kind of on your, we, I, I mean, one of the things you always did really well, but subtly and slowly was kind of deconstruct a lot of uh, Christian ideology. I don't, I want yeah. to say they're Christian ideologies, but Christian culture ideologies maybe is yeah. a better way to put it. Yeah. And sure. then, so for when, when you kind of hit fingers crossed, I, it didn't seem overly, it wasn't, some people took it as a bit of a blow and yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't assume people's trajectories, but it was kind of just like, it doesn't not make sense either. You know what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: It's interesting to me. I didn't see it coming to be perfectly honest. I didn't see that major deconstruction and deconversion process in my future. I didn't, I didn't see that around the corner, but it is absolutely what occurred and yep. it is absolutely what, what I mean, if I'm going to be completely frank, all my way, you know, all the way through, that just is absolutely how how it felt and feels to me, and um, and I had to be honest about it, and um, I I, so I didn't see that for myself, but I know that there were probably some people who kind of uh, who maybe saw the kinds of questions that I was asking always and wondered how long would it take me to get around to finally get down to the root and start chopping away at that. Sure. You know, I, I, I've mean, been, I'd been pruning the top half of the tree, but at what point was I going to get down to the root and start chopping away? And, and, and I think that maybe for a lot of people, it was just like, it was a few steps further down a road than they thought I would go, but it was the wrong, the road that I'd always been on. They just didn't think I'd go quite that far down. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know how it really seemed from the outside. I was, I was going through so much personally at that time that I really just had my head down and I was barely able to even, you know, write songs about it. I, I, I have no objectivity or perspective on those couple of years, really. Um, I'm, I'm definitely grateful I was able to make something and document it. And because uh, I think it's one of those complicated, you know, like those are, I combined two really complex moments and seasons of life um, and pr- tried to provide a little soundtrack for both. And like I said, what I need and can't find, I make. And there's not a lot of people, not a lot of songs, not a lot of albums that I found that are about divorce and uh, a lot of breakup songs, but not a lot of songs about divorce. And I really needed some, I couldn't really find any. Um, There are, there are very few songs or albums about deconversion, deconstruction. Dave Bazan, who, uh, if you guys have not talked to you should, and he's been a pal of mine for many years and he's maybe one of the only people who's really done it really well and really faithfully over the years, but we need more. I mean, Dave can't do it all himself. And, And, uh, so, and there are a few more, but not a lot more. And so, you know, I wanted to contribute. And, uh, so I'm glad I was able to document some of that. And, um, but, uh, Yeah. So uh, like I said, I mean, I I was probably more surprised than anybody.
2: Yeah. I didn't mean to, I don't want to come off as though there is like anyone was presuming the outcome. Oh no, no, not at all. I hope that's not how it came off. the, The idea that like when you watch people go down, I think what, if there's something that people, I would have expected people to learn from you is to just follow along and and not be surprised, like not be overly surprised like by like right. where your journey takes you. And I think that's, what's interesting is that cause I was on a journey myself, you know, while I was following your work too, like many of us, uh, you know, your millennial generation going through your, oh, let's ask a lot of questions here and see where this takes yeah. us. Um, so yeah. as I'm asking the similar questions and then you, you see where you're going. It, it just is what, I guess when you see the backlash of some people, which was ironically predominantly evangelicals who had something to say, who were sure. often the ones who stopped caring about your work years prior because it wasn't right. kind of supporting their scaffolding the way they wanted it to. But yes, so but with all of that and everything you went through, I want to kind of just end here with asking you and, and having you kind of, you know, tell us a little bit about your new project because it yeah. is called The Jesus Hypothesis. And it, mm-hmm. so you're, regardless of where you're at, uh, you're still thinking about Jesus and, and having it, it's, it's keeping the things kind of turning in your mind. So why don't you just kind of yeah let us know a little bit about where your head's at oh, and no, what you're looking it, to do with this.
1: Yeah, no, I really appreciate you asking. Um, and yeah, so that, so the new record and the new project, yeah, it's called the Jesus hypothesis and it, it, it's, it's a combination of a handful of things. I, 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 I've not wanted over the years to pay lip service to the idea that when you say that you're deconstructed and therefore open to anything, what most people don't say but mean is anything other than where I've just come from. <laughs> and I'm not willing to entertain the idea that maybe my maybe it's my doubts that I need to doubt, and maybe I need to question, you know, and and um, and 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 that you know or that maybe I need to be open to the idea that I was so committed to a particular version of a thing Mm -hmm. that I missed the actual thing. And maybe there is an actual thing there that I missed because I couldn't see it. It's like you missed the song for the, for one, one single melody. And so that was, and, and that has been increasingly on my mind the last few years as I've and and I know Bazan um it's just not a lot of friends i can think of that that i could cite in a in a in, for something like this but i know he has continued to be really preoccupied with the unknowable the invisible um over the years even on the other yeah. side of his deconversion from christian faith um the the unknowable when i say the unknowable i mean the future and when i say the invisible i mean god god's invisible the future's unknowable so we're dealing with invisible unknowable things and and my Opinion is when it comes to invisible unknowable things I think uncertainty is a pretty good way to go. Mm-hmm. I don't really see how you can be completely certain about things that are invisible and unknowable. And um and I don't also think that uncertainty is the enemy of faith. I think it's the prerequisite of faith. Um because if you were certain you there's no need for faith. And so as I've been preoccupied over the last few years with the things from my as as we mentioned all the way at the beginning of this conversation, the things that I really value about my early life as a believer and my and 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 some of the values and things that I learned, some of the things I've learned that I got from studying and following the life of Jesus and things like that over the years, um his love of the poor, his love of enemies, um mm-hmm. his his uh dignifying of the poor and women, and just a lot of things that I really like. Um, and I think our great ideas, I'm not sure originated with him, but he certainly popularized. Um, and so I, I, I started to think a handful of months or maybe more than a year ago. Like, I wonder, like, I want, I wish I could go back. Cause I think the stakes are too high for me to become a reversed fund, a reverse fundamentalist and just be certain about what I know is not true now. Um, and so I thought, you know, I would like to be able to go back to that and try to detach myself. I'd like to try to deconstruct my deconstruction. I'd like to be able to go back and detach myself from all the presumptions that I had about Jesus and about Christianity and about evangelical Christian practice and go back and just look at it kind of fresh again and just see if there's anything meaningful there and see if there's anything life-changing there, anything I'd like to bring with me. Um And, Hmm. and, and there's this phrase that I kind of came up with that I, I used to say a lot. I even said during my years of Christian belief, um, and I don't think it's, I think it makes great sense. And I've always liked this phrase. Um, and I actually, this is actually the song, what the name of one of the songs on the new record that I've already written. And that's, uh, some gods deserve atheists. And (laughs) which is, which is to say that sometimes you have to, kill and crucify a false God to find a real one. If there is one, if there's a real one there to be found, and maybe there's not, but you have to, you have to flee from and get rid of and kill and destroy false or created things to find real or organic things. And so, and the, and the, the, the progress of that song as I've written it is kind of confessing to a lot of the ways like, I I've got friends who who always joke with me and say that so first of all I don't like categories I don't like I don't I don't resonate with or identify at all with categories categories in my opinion when it comes to spirituality tend to be an effort to give short answers to questions for which there just aren't short answers. Yeah. And, I, and I would rather to the
2: way that other people define the words that they're hearing. Yeah, It's really if, complicated and frustrating. Yeah,
1: If 10 people have 10 different definitions for a word, you need to stop using that word. Yeah. Um, cause it doesn't have any meaning anymore. Did you hear that and Casey? I, think, I
2: have to stop calling myself a Christian now. <laughs> and so I honestly think the word
1: Christian is a, is a, is a, is a, is a candidate high on the list. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but Cause it, cause 10 different, 10 people have 10 different definitions of, I mean, I literally asked 10 different people, random people on the street. To define the word Christian, you're going to, you're absolutely going to get ten different definitions. So you should stop using it. But the point being <laughs> that um uh, that I uh, uh, oh, oh oh wait, what was I even saying? I It's so funny. I I, I get uh, t- uh, caught up on these rabbit trails that I forget what I was even talking about. I think I was talking about the uh, oh yeah that my friends they like to use these they they what they like to said. So I don't identify with the term atheist or agnostic mm-hmm. or I don't identify. And I used to not really identify or like terms like evangelical or even reformed or which is, is just a, a, a term for what's Being typically. Sorry. Exactly. And so there you go. So there's your definition, you know, and not, and, and nine other people would have nine others, but, um, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's classically a very conservative school of systematic theology. And like it or, or know it or not, but the Baptists are founded on Reformed theology. The, the 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 Lutherans are, the Presbyterians are, um, the majority of of, of of Protestant denominations are are founded on very conservative reform type theology. Mm-hmm. And and the Methodists, though, however, are not. They're Wesleyan and and. Uh, but the point is by tradition, and so the point is they. My friends always tell me that like even though I'm not a believer anymore, um, or whatever, even that category I don't like. What's that mean? Um, but they say that when I start talking about Christianity, when we start having conversations about Christianity, that I, that they, they tell me that I'm a reformed agnostic because I apparently don't believe in any of it, but when I do talk, like I do believe it, I go hardcore back to this very conservative, um, you know, type of systematic theology. And that's the only way that I understand it. That is literally the grid through which I look at it. And so- For me, the process of this new record and the process I'm trying to go through with it is to go back to trying to look at Christianity as a practice, as even a spiritual belief, and try to let go of all that and just see it for what it might actually naturally be rather than what I might try to make it through the grid, the rigid grid of my theological bent. And because I think I do that, I know I'm guilty of that. And so I want to go back and see what's meaningful there. And and a lot of it also is like there were councils of men who were put together to determine the books of the Bible, mm-hmm. what was in the canon. There were councils of men that were put together and ordained somehow to decide the contents of the apostles and Nicene creeds, which are like kind of the litmus test of orthodoxy in a lot of Protestant churches why do we think that we here now in 2021 are are fundamentally unlike these men right why why is it um and and so i you know i've often been accused of being you know so i'm like was very reformed that was the kind of the word for it and i'm starting to wonder if maybe i was not actually reformed enough and here's what i mean um because the the battle cry of the reformation so this would have been 16th century martin luther tacking up his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door he mm-hmm. was a devout catholic loved the church the church was corrupt there were things going on that shouldn't have been going on teachings that were not consistent with what he believed to be orthodox and so he went to try to reform that church that he loved a good catholic boy trying to reform that church when they would not and they dug their heels in he went from a reformer to a protestant he pr- protesting what they were doing cuz he didn't believe it was biblical and he accidentally started the protestant faith and so um, like and the Jesus battle cry, the
2: Christian faith.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. Well, I, I would absolutely. Yeah. Cause the early Christians didn't call themselves Christians. Right. That was never a term that was self-applied. It was always a public verdict, yeah. never self-application. <laughs> um, people would see people loving the poor radically. And so those, there, was, there must be the Christians. Now we march into town and say, that's what we are. And then we, you know, host a MAGA rally. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, but the point that I'm making is that, um, Uh, that the cry of the reformation was semper reformanda. It was always reforming, never stop reforming. Don't take our reform of this thing and then, and then say, this is it forever. And absolutely continue. Always go on reforming it. I don't, I think we've just been lazy on the job. I think that we, and so um, one of the lines from the title track of the record says, uh, maybe black sheep uh, aren't lost. They're just pioneers. Um, you know, brave enough to wander off and find what's past our fear. And it's like, so maybe all the people who we call heretics and, and, you know, unorthodox. And, you know, I think of people like Rob Bell and I think of people, there's a lot of folks, Richard Rohr to a large extent. Maybe these actually are not the heretics and these are not the black ship sheep. Maybe these are the reformers. Maybe these are the people who here in 2021 are doing what all the great church fathers always did, which is call, all this into question and find out what needs to be pruned and what needs to come along. And it's like, why can't I do that? Why can't we all do that? Are we not the, the, uh, assembly of the saints? Are we not, are we not all saints in the church? I'm not, I'm not even part of the church really anymore. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but like if I am, you know, do I not have the right to say maybe some of this needs to get pruned out? May, sure. Maybe, maybe there are uh, teachings that have been part of orthodoxy for many years that need to be questioned. And that's exactly what reformation is all about. And where are the reformers? Where, like who's nailing the theses up on the doors here in 2021? Most people are are like getting extremely comfortable and just digging into how they can make the money. But it's like, somebody needs to call this shit into question. And so my goal with this record is to go back through and examine it, try to get free of my previous uh, conceptions about it all and see what's really there. And I'm inviting people into this process with me. I I wrote the title track of the record, and that's the only one. And now I'm inviting people to come in and literally watch me write and record the record in real time, live and archived. I'm streaming the whole thing. I'm four sessions in, four two-hour sessions in. So I've done eight hours online so far, and I've got about 500 500 or so people and, and, and growing that are doing this with me, that are watching, that are, and it's a thing that you, it's a, it's, it's through a platform called Patreon. And so, and I've always thought that the patronage model was always the best model for art making. I mean, this model of uh, art as commodity where I make it and then you buy it and you own a copy of it. And that's yours. That's a very recent invention just in the last hundreds of years. It's like the best art in all of civilized culture has always come out of the patronage model where big institutions would employ artists to a blue collar living. um, And then they would make art for the common good. And it was churches and governments would do that. And that was a great thing. I love patronage. And so Patreon is a platform where people can go and be patrons of artists and creatives. So that's where I'm doing it. You can come and you can become a patron. And that's how you get in on this experience of watching me make Write and record this thing. And it's been incredible. I've never done this before. Like, I literally, my wife doesn't get to hear the songs until <laughs> I have ag- agonized over every conjunction and every bit of punctuation. She's not a patron? I, Man. Well, no, she is actually. <laughs> but uh, but uh, and we both, she's an artist too. We both very much support each other as a creative. But the point is, um, you know, that I've never created in front of people before. And it's always been the most private thing I do. So it's been fascinating. Yeah. and it's yeah so that's what I'm doing and uh, the record will get finished and will come out and if people want to wait and listen to it on Spotify in four or five or six months or whatever however long it takes that's cool with me but if you want to be in on the conversation and be part of I mean I, I do like you know once a month we do zoom hangouts where people we're all discussing all the subject matter we do I do a, a bi-weekly podcast where me and my co-creator are are discussing the contents. I mean, we, we have a discord group where everybody's chatting constantly about all this stuff and I'm in there always talking to everybody. So it's just like, if you want that experience, you can have it. If you don't, you don't have to, but um, it just, to me felt like the right model for something like this. Um, and it's so far, it's been a blast and I'm, and I have no idea where I'm going to wind up. That's I mean, awesome. I, I really don't, um, yeah. I, you know, for all I know, this could, you know, be, Uh, 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 In fact, I'm I'm aiming for it. At the beginning, I mentioned that the term Christian, uh, other than applied to humans as a marketing term, and I think that's true. And I plan very much on releasing this into the Christian music category because I think that's who it's for. Hmm. Um, And so this is going to be my first Christian album in about five years, so it's going to be interesting.
2: Man, that's awesome. I love that you're doing. I think it's uh as much as it's new and different, I think that's what makes it kind of on brand for you. And I think it goes yeah. with the vulnerable and uh, lyrics or vulnerability and authenticity that you've been kind of just bringing forth since you've been involved yeah. in music. So well, I just don't I want people to awesome. feel
1: alone. That's the end of it. I, I like going through these processes, it, especially if your job is dependent on your believing a certain way or your friends or your family um, is dependent, you know, on you believing a certain way. Going through and asking these kind of questions can be terrifying, and it can be really alienating and isolating and lonely. And I don't. Want, I want people to know that they're not alone, and so I want to do this out in public and in the daylight because I want people to to know that they belong somewhere and that they're going through this with a cloud of witnesses with them and a community with them. And I've been really grateful for this little community that's come up around me. And I want people to know that that's that's their community potentially. And that there is a place for these kind of questions. You can do it s- safely and you can do it with friends and you don't have to leave to question. You can stay, you know, and that's important to me to know because yeah. um, I wasn't finding that necessarily when I was going through it. So it's important to me that to, again, to contribute a little bit there.
2: Yeah. You know? Man, that's awesome. Derek, thanks so much for your, your time, your story, and just kind of letting us into your life a little bit with
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been great to talk to you guys. Absolutely.
2: All right, guys. Well, thanks
0: for listening. Check our social media if you want to join the Discord and hang out with some other people discussing topics like this, sharing uh, memes and whatnot. And uh, we will catch you next time.